A heads up for listeners. This podcast includes discussion of suicide. Dr. Lorna Breen cared for countless COVID-19 patients at New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital before contracting the COVID virus herself. After recovering, she once again donned personal protective equipment and went back into the fray to help fight this plague. But as happened with so many frontline workers, the sea of patients and the overcrowded hospital began to take a toll on Lorna. As a healer, she was unable to heal. She became consumed with fear of the professional stigma of not being able to keep up in a pandemic and worried that she would not get support to address her deteriorating mental health without losing her medical license. The U.S. needs a health system that does not leave its frontline caregivers unprotected and unsupported. We call on Congress to honor healthcare workers by advancing the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act and making a down payment on addressing this growing crisis. Most physicians enter medicine following a calling rather than a career path. They go into the field with a desire to help people. Many approach it with an almost religious zeal, enduring lost sleep, lost years of young adulthood, huge opportunity costs, family strain, financial instability, disregard for personal health, and a multitude of other challenges. Each hurdle offers a lesson in endurance in the service of one's goal, which, starting in the third year of medical school, is sharply focused on ensuring the best care for one's patients. Failing to consistently meet patients' needs has a profound impact on physician well-being. This is the crux of consequent moral injury. That was Corey Feist and Wendy Dean. Corey, the CEO of a university-based physicians group, read from the first opinion he wrote with his wife, Jennifer Breen Feist, who is Lorna Breen's sister, entitled, Congress Needs to Pass the Dr. Lorna Breen Act to Support U.S. Healthcare Workers. Wendy Dean, a psychiatrist who helped apply the term moral injury to healthcare, read from her first opinion, physicians aren't burning out, they're suffering from moral injury. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you, using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. So welcome to you both. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Corey, thanks to you and Jennifer for sharing Lorna's story with First Opinion readers. For listeners who might not be familiar with it, Lorna became a very public face of the burden of caring for COVID-19 patients in the crushing spring of 2020 when she succumbed to suicide. Do you remember the first time you met Lorna? I sure do. Uh, Jennifer and I were in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in law school, and she was visiting her sister uh, for medical school at Medical College of Virginia. What was your first impression? Lorna, you could tell, was... Um, 
very passionate about her sister, Jennifer, and she was equally as passionate about becoming an amazing uh, physician, uh, following in her brother and her father's footsteps in that career. Her father was a trauma surgeon at the University of Virginia and at Geisinger, and her brother is a radiologist. What was she like as a person? Lorna was a truly caring individual. She was the crazy aunt to eight nieces and nephews. Um, she was a very religious person, uh, very active in her church in New York. Uh, she was a latecomer to uh, the arts and, uh, and took up salsa dancing and uh, the cello, um, I think in her 30s. Uh, and she lived with this zeal uh, always in her life. She drove a convertible in New York City, which is probably one of the least practical cars to drive in New York City, but she did it because it made her happy. Uh, she would go study for her board exams um, in a new foreign place by herself um, when those boards came up because she just wanted to explore the world. And every single year she would schedule in advance um, snowboarding trips when she wasn't working so that she could see different parts of the country as well as the world and, and, and explore that passion at the same time. So just uh, an amazing, an amazing um, sister-in-law for me and really cared so deeply about her friends, her colleagues, her patients, um, and her family. How do you think that kind of personality translated into her work as a doctor? It's a great question. While Lorna was a very unique person, um, some of her characteristics and passion are very typical of physicians. Uh, they start at an early age being incredibly dedicated to um, good grades and almost a perfectionism because getting into medical school and getting that residency slot um, takes hours and hours and hours of dedication um, and real focus. And so she was very, very similar to many in the field who just are never off the clock. Um, and the last thing I would say is always putting others in front of herself and her own needs. Uh, again, very typical of the countless hours that physicians have to put in in their training and was just absolutely what what was was and and is in our memory what Lorna was. She herself came down with COVID and then recovered and went back to work. What was the first inkling that you and Jennifer had that Lorna might be getting into trouble? The first day she went back to work. We had been on vacation with Lorna in mid-March and uh, we had uh, that was when the peak was starting. It was the same week the President of the United States went public. Uh, it was the same week that uh, airports started to shut down. She went back and contracted COVID within days. Um, and then she was trying to remotely run her emergency room um, as her colleagues were calling out sick with COVID and really uh, recuperating at home, lost a bunch of weight, didn't, you know, and uh, didn't sleep a lot and was really exhausted going back in. And from the first um, probably half day that she returned to the workforce on April 1st, uh, she was very, very concerned that she was not going to be able to keep up and that others were going to perceive that as a sign of weakness. Um, and she immediately started expressing to us concerns about her own well-being and really her professional reputation. Uh, was very, very uh, clear with us from the moment that she started back that, that there was something wrong. What she was describing to us in her words was Armageddon from the perspective of what she was seeing in terms of the death and dying and really an inability of the clinicians and the nurse, you know, the physicians, the nurses, the whole team to really take care of the volume of patients that they were seeing um, at really ground zero of, of, the, of the first wave of COVID-19. Does that sound familiar, Wendy? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, 
it's hard to hear. It's really hard to listen to because I've heard this story so many times. Both, you know, I didn't know Lorna, but I know so many of her. Um, she sort of is, she, she's emblematic of what a, what a dedicated physician is. And throughout the pandemic for the last year, I have fielded calls from scores of physicians, um, calls, texts, emails, saying the same thing. We're drowning. We're overwhelmed. We can't keep up. And there aren't reinforcements. You've been thinking about physicians in distress and writing about the topic for a while. Can you give us a bit of a broader context? How common is it uh, among physicians having depression or thoughts of suicide? So physicians are, have one of the highest rates of suicide of any profession. Um, I started looking at this when I was working for the Department of Defense. And it was during a time when the suicide rate for veterans and active duty military was alarming uh, military leadership. Um, they shut down the army to teach folks about suicide risk signs and prevention. And in the context, I started thinking about physician rates of suicide, and I, um, I realized that physicians' rates were almost twice that of the military, um, 400 a year, which sounds like a small number, but when you, when you realize that it's only, that physicians are only a million strong across the whole U.S., 400, losing 400 a year is a huge number. It's like you losing two medical school classes. And it, from what I understand, it's not just limited to physicians. I saw a recent paper in JAMA Psychiatry that said that female nurses have even higher rates than female physicians do. And female physicians are more likely to commit suicide than male physicians. Correct. So the, the female suicide rate for physicians is about two and a half, almost two and a half times what the general population is. Um, and for female nurses, it's, that's a new paper out. Um, it is higher. And I, I think what, what we need to take away from that is people are in pain. I want to, I want to connect something that, that Wendy said. <clears throat> so the venotype of a, of a physician is absolutely what, what Lorna was. Uh, and Lorna was a seasoned physician in Manhattan. Okay. So she did not just show up new on the scene though. She had actually been um, in her residency at Long Island Jewish hospital during nine 11. And I remember her calling us to let her, let us know that they might be getting patients. Um, she had worked through um, prior, you know, almost pandemics, if you will, and other other big events, and and so um, leading up to the um, this this issue, or sorry, this the cause of her death um, and her death, she had been ex she was exhausted. She had contracted COVID, and uh, as my father pointed out to me, um, this was before she died, but when she was exhibiting really challenging. Um, symptoms and exhaustion. He, he said, just, we've never had COVID, but remember how exhausted you are when you come back from a bout of the flu. You have, your, your faculties are completely depleted. That's where she is right now. So she wasn't at the top of her game as an athlete about to run a marathon in, in, in the tip top of her condition. She had just gone through, uh, you know, COVID, which we still don't know what the impacts physically and mentally are. But then she went back and she was working. She was scheduled for 10, 12-hour shifts in a row. And when she went back, what she found because of the circumstances and because of 
the number of patients and the lack of staff is that when folks were done with their 12-hour shifts, they weren't going home. And because of the pressures to keep up, she didn't feel like she could go home in that moment because no one was going home. So she was working on very reduced sleep. She was working right on the heels of COVID. She um, was still, um, you know, she didn't have fever, a fever, but she still clearly had, you know, symptoms of COVID, but she had gone back into that fire and, uh, and she was beyond exhausted and then overwhelmed. And, and then on top of that, the fears of the, the licensure and the ramifications of getting mental health support for her were just literally the, the last, the, the breaking point uh, for Lorna. I think we underestimate what people saw during COVID. I, I, I think that situation is probably, it was not something that any of us prepared for. It is not a situation that you know, in medical school, you train for a disaster response, you train for triage, but that triage is like a bus accident. It happens, you'd manage it, and it's over. This was a crisis after crisis after crisis, every shift. And there just was not enough staff or space or supplies. And you, I, I think, I think it's really, um, when we look back on this, we're going to realize what an unbelievable job people did with really constrained resources. I mean, when we think about Lorna, she contracted COVID at a time when we didn't even know how to treat it. So, so not only was she going into that, that viral stew, worrying about whether or not she was going to contract it, whether she was going to bring it back to her friends and family, but if she got it, it was, it was maybe the first thing in her medical career that could conceivably kill her, the virus itself. And that, that is, um, that's a situation that none of us had faced before. And, and Pat, if I could just echo what, what Wendy was saying, uh, we heard that from her. Uh, when she got back before she contracted COVID and the, the, rule, the, the CDC and others were not clear in terms of what, how we contracted the virus, um, she would talk about the the run on the supply closet by anybody and everyone, and they had to actually lock it and put somebody out in front of it because people were just grabbing N95 masks and all this other PPE, um, and and it was just it was a it was the wild wild west, if you will, with a lot a lot without a lot of consistency and um, and and the reality is we didn't know as a country or as a world how to how to deal with this, so this was very early on. Wendy, this might be a good time to come back to pain. I- Wanted to make sure you didn't think I forgot forgot that, but this might be a good time to to visit that. What are some of the pain points that um, that Corey and 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 yourself think about and write about in this regard? What we're seeing talking to physicians across the country is their frustration with the amount of administrative um, work or burden that gets put between them and their patients. So, for example. Um, scheduling difficulties that take part of the part of the short visit that people have to work through it, um, having to be on the electronic medical record during the appointment with the patient, having to do prior authorizations to get permission for a CAT scan or an MRI, all of those things make it difficult. It, physicians feel like they're fighting the system every day, 
and it wears them down. It just frankly wears them down. It also frustrates patients. So then we have a physician who has no ability to do anything different and a patient who's frustrated with how difficult it is to get care. And, and I think for clinicians, the really hard, the hardest part about that is they know what the patient needs and they can't get it for them. So, you know, in Corey, what Corey said at the opening was as a healer, she was unable to heal. And that is, that is such a, a poignant phrase because that is what, what we've been hearing even prior to the pandemic that people were feeling. One of the things that we know about healthcare, if you take this pandemic and put it in the parking lot just for a moment, is that there are many things in the day on the day in the life of a healthcare professional, either a physician or a, or a nurse, that will be known triggers for either trauma or some kind of uh, moral injury, and the, that's where we need to do a much better job organizationally at knowing when those interventions when when those interventions just need to be a matter of course just like the military automatically deploys mental health professionals with medical professionals into combat there are certain circumstances when those kind of things just should just be a matter of common practice and consistent practice across all the healthcare industry so why have medical practices and hospitals and healthcare centers done such a cruddy job of valuing their workers are they not listening or What's going on? So in, in, my, in my view, I think what's happening is each side of the, the house of medicine is divided at this point in two. There's the clinical side that takes care of patients. And then there's the administrative side that takes care of the organization itself, makes sure that it stays alive. I think each side of the house of medicine is doing its level best to do an excellent job at what it was trained to do. So the clinicians are trying to take good care of the patients. The administrators are trying to make sure that the hospital stays afloat and stays alive. The problem is that sometimes those two goals are pointed in different directions. And, and Pat, I would, I would elaborate on what Wendy said. You know, when you think about um, the triple aim of medicine to provide the best care, you know, the highest quality of care to patients, the easiest access to patients, at the most affordable cost to patients. All of those are patient-centered goals, which are laudable. But what we've done is we've we've skipped over the impact on the workforce and committing first to the workforce and their well-being as a condition that proceeds or as a condition to actually getting and achieving those goals. And I think that with all of the mounting regulation that is on health systems, um, the uh, the the incentives, in fact, that were built into the Affordable Care Act to grow and scale your electronic medical record and meaningfully use it. Um, I just I truly believe that many of the many of the 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 reasons why we're here was that it was an unintended you know outcome by looking at all of these pressures on the health system to chase in some ways many of these um, regulatory um, drivers and 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 achieve those goals as well as the triple aim. So if, if regulations got us here, more regulation probably isn't going to help uh, solve any problems here, I'm guessing. Uh, uh, no, it would be great if we could, if we could pare down a lot of the regulations. So for just one simple example, one of the meaningful uses, one of the meaningful use um, demonstrations in the electronic medical record is for increased collaborative care. 
What that's done is drive all of physician consults through the electronic medical record, which means they don't talk to each other anymore, which means they're in silos, and we are not connecting the walls of the House of Medicine tightly together. And you're not connecting people. We're not connecting people. No. So so people used to drop in and see each other and say, hey, what about this patient? What about that patient? Number one, they're, too, they're overscheduled, so they don't have time to do that. But number two, they're being asked to drive all of their communication through the electronic medical record to prove meaningful use. So let me pick up a different thread of this conversation. Corey, you wrote that Lorna was worried about potentially losing her job if she sought help for her mental health. What did she tell you about that? Well, as I said earlier, Lorna, from the literally that first day she went back to work, uh, feared for the professional um, stigma and the repercussions to her uh, to her reputation. If you are a trained professional in this country and you're a physician or other professional, you know you live and die by your reputation and you, you build your reputation over years. Um, in some ways, this pandemic, especially for an emergency medicine physician, a medicine, emergency medicine physician in New York, which has been ground zero to many things, this is your big day. This is your I almost said Olympics because we've got an Olympics coming up, but this is your big moment. And for her to feel like she couldn't keep up in that big moment, the moment she had in some ways been training for her whole life and the professional stigma felt just internally uh, by her of the perception that her by her colleagues that she may not be able to keep up was was it immediately uh, felt and perceived by Lorna. The second piece is that once we were able to get her into a mental health um, unit at the University of Virginia and in the inpatient unit, she very much articulated to us that once we had now that formal intervention, that this was going to cause her to lose her medical license in New York um, and take away everything that she'd ever worked for. Sadly, she was um, mistaken. And in New York State, they have some of the most favorable licensure uh, laws um, in terms of the favorable to not asking questions, if you will, about the mental health, uh, in any prior mental health. But that the, 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 the stigma and the thought by physicians that they will lose their license for getting mental health is so ingrained that she was confident beyond any doubt that this was going to happen and not trusting um, of our words that this was, in fact, not going to, to occur. And, and that, that was, I believe, the, the final straw, as I said before, for Lorna. There was a, an interesting but sad essay last year in the New England Journal of Medicine by Justin Bullock, who wrote about living with bipolar disorder as a resident at the University of California, San Francisco. And months later, he was subjected to a weeks-long, quote, fitness of duty evaluation, during which he couldn't work, which humiliated him and jeopardized his career. Wendy, is that kind of a common thing that happens? It is. It is. Um, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that physicians don't know about it until it happens. It is not commonly discussed. And it's not in every state. But um, it, is, it is very possible for a physician to answer a question or to have a question raised to the medical board, which by the way, can happen from anyone, and to have to undergo a either an inpatient stay or an outpatient evaluation 
um, to determine how fit they are to, to, to work. Um, even though there's, there's not good data to show that any of that really predicts very well what the outcomes will be for that physician. Medical licensing exams, which are run state by state, sometimes ask really explicit questions about um, a physician's previous or current mental health. Why do they need to know that kind of stuff? There's a good argument that they don't. The argument would be, <laughs> the argument would be that what, what they're trying to do is protect patient safety. But the reality is that your previous your pre previous history doesn't necessarily um, align with what you're able to do now. So a more accurate question is, do you have any current condition that impairs your ability to take care of patients? That impairs, that is a functional impairment. Not are you being treated for anything, which is sometimes what is asked, um, but is there anything that interferes with your ability to care for patients? It's, it's very difficult for physicians to feel like they are in a situation where people are looking out for their best interest. It's more, we're looking out for the patients, which is appropriate, but it also, that puts physicians at a much higher bar that they have to meet as far as their conduct, their safety, their mental health. There was a great article um, in JAMA on May 18th entitled Consistency Between State Medical Licensure Applications and Recommendations Regarding Physician Mental Health, which um, is quickly becoming the seminal and most current piece on the current state. In this article from May 18th, the, the authors compared the Federation of State Medical Board's recommendations in 2018 to every state in the country's um, questions. Of all the states, only one followed the 2018 guidance from the State Medical Licensing Board, and that's North Carolina. And what North Carolina does is actually similar to what Mississippi does. And I don't, I'm not sure why Mississippi doesn't check all of the boxes, but um, I'll just say in both cases, North Carolina and Mississippi, ask, ask clinicians or physicians to attest that they're taking care of their own well-being because they recognize that there is a connection between well-being and the treatment of patients. So they kind of turn that around as opposed to being worried about impairment, but they ask them to attest that they are doing that because of the recognition. So it turns that stigma a bit, a bit on its head. Uh, but we only have one or two states out of, out of 50. We've got a long way to go. And that, that's the other thing that physicians can do right now is they can educate themselves as to what are the laws in their state. Because for many, there are no ramifications. For many, there are no ramifications. It is um, really the minority of states where there are ramifications, but the perception is so great that, that many believe that, that regardless of what that says on a piece of paper, they're, they're, they're going to lose their license. So how can physicians feel comfortable talking openly about mental health struggles when there are real-life consequences like this? Until we change the laws or the questions that medical boards can ask, it will be a struggle for physicians to feel comfortable. And it's not just about mental health. It's about health in general. I think that's one of the, because of the, the stigma, um, I think that's one of the reasons why we see across the country uh, when we ask physicians what would be helpful is uh, peer support programs, 
which are programs where uh, their peers, their physician peers and their colleagues are the ones they speak with. Um, as opposed to formal mental health intervention. Now that that obviously doesn't is it does not replace mental health treatment, uh, but for so many, what they need is they need a colleague to be able to speak with. And so um, we have seen a a, a collective um, call for those kinds of um, interventions. Have you seen that working anywhere? Very much so. In fact, um, I've I've now come to learn about many of the hospitals actually in New York City and how they've had uh, scalable uh, peer support programs where uh, physicians talk to physicians, nurses talk to nurses. And we're actually in the process at the University of Virginia of implementing a similar program because we've seen them effect- to be effective. You don't want to give people a solution that they don't want. And uh, I would say that many of the physicians have literally asked for this over and above everything else. And so let's give them what they need and what they want right now. Um, as one step in that direction until, as Wendy said, we can address the, the, um, the licensure issue and the many other regulatory issues as well. So you both in your, in your work must have seen or heard about physicians struggling to, quote, handle things themselves rather than seeking help because of potential consequences. It, it must be the rule rather than the exception. It is. Um, so one of the distressing statistics that I heard from a physician who has studied suicide for his entire career is that upwards of almost a quarter of physicians do not get any care for themselves. That mental health care or physical care, because either can be, they fear that either will be deemed a, an impairing condition. And Pat, I would add to that, that you know, when, after my sister-in-law died, and there was a lot of national publicity about her death, um, my wife and I huddled in just deep, deep, deep depths of, gra- of grief. All of a sudden, we received an outpouring of, of requests for t- to talk and sharing of stories, which we've categorized as this, you know, overwhelming cry for help because there are so many who have suffered in silence for years. And that's actually, that is what inspired Jennifer and I to create the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation and do that work. It was not Lorna's death, but it was the response by the healthcare community to say, enough is enough. We can't do this anymore. And someone has to start caring about our own well-being. We need to be able to take care of ourselves. This is one too many, a bridge too far, if you will. And that's and that is absolutely why we did it, because it has just been there and it's been under the surface and not talked about. And it is but it's been there this this whole time. And so there's another public part of that. The Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, now circulating in Congress, aims to support healthcare workers. Corey, can you tell us what this act is and what it would do? Absolutely. And we're so, so grateful. Um, because you asked before about more regulation, and I would say this is the very first time the federal government has stepped in to affirmatively commit to the well-being of the healthcare workforce's mental health. So that is, it is a huge first step. Um, Last summer, um, we were really grateful that Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia reached out to Jennifer and I. And so um, working with a cross-section of associations, uh, American Psychiatric Association, the, Amer- the American College of Emergency Physicians, among many, many others, 
We designed the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, or Lorna Breen Act for short, um, to make an immediate and a long-term impact on this issue. The way that it makes an immediate impact on the issue is that it starts with a national awareness campaign um, covering some of these things that we've talked about today. Do clinicians really understand the status of their licensure? Do they understand what it, what it means to take care of your own mental health and physical health and, and what, the, what the warning signs are to look for in your colleagues so that you can take care of each other? It also provides grants to hospitals and health systems right now to establish programs to, again, take care of the well-being of the workforce. On a more long-term basis, it does two very important things. First is it makes a very large commitment to our future workforce, uh, the nursing students, the medical students, those in healthcare professional training programs. And then finally, it creates a study provision that, that is a comprehensive study of the root cause of many of these issues. And that's actually a way that the federal government can take a look at these state licensure issues, because otherwise the federal government doesn't have an ability to look at the states. Uh, but but what the, the the comprehensive study does is it looks at all of the causes of these issues, not just one or the other. And as you've understood from this conversation today, this is certainly a multifactorial issue. We are so incredibly excited because the American Rescue Plan, which was President Biden's first COVID relief package, pre-funded this legislation with $140 million, uh, which is in the process of, of being allocated out right now by HRSA and the CDC. Um, the, the, we are also so excited because uh, the Senate Help Committee, which is the committee of jurisdiction over this legislation, uh, had a markup of the legislation in the last couple of weeks and has now passed unanimously and on a bipartisan basis um, the, the, uh, the Lorna Breen Act and submitted it for floor consideration, which means that the the um, the entire Senate will pass the you know, will now be able to take it up and um Senator Kane is working through how that process and when that process will happen. And then it'll go to the, to the House. And we're really, really grateful that uh, Congresswoman Susan Wild of Pennsylvania is uh, the lead uh, champion of this legislation um, in the House and will pick up where we, where we hand it off to her to, to push for the legislation to move forward. But uh, this is first of its kind legislation. No one's ever done this before. Um, it, it, it is going to provide an immediate as well as a long-term um, impact on the issue. And it is just a first start. We need to go well beyond the Lorna Breen Act um, so that we can take care of our healers. You agree with the good good start, Wendy? I, I think it is a fantastic start. Um, I, I think we, we really do need to jump in and start helping the people who are struggling now. Um, but I, I really hope that we can also shift this to look at beyond the individual who is suffering at the conditions that are causing them to suffer. Um, and it sounds to me like that's going to be that's going to be a long term plan um, with this. But if we don't change the environment, um, I don't think we're going to escape this challenge. Corey, sometimes bills are written in a way that you really hope they'll get passed. If, if you could put one thing into it that's not in there now, what would you put in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, wow. Okay, I would put two things in. You only asked for one. Uh, <laughs> we, need, we need more mental health um, healers in this country. If the pandemic has illustrated anything, it is that getting a, an appointment with a mental health professional in this country is absolutely one of the hardest things you can do right now. And the second part of my answer is that for one of the things that the federal government can do right now is it could 
um, through its administrative arm, limit the questions in the credentialing applications and privileging applications uh, for hospitals under the under the conditions of participation that the, that all hospitals assign on to for the Medicare program and eliminate any ability for hospitals to ask those questions, those stigma reinforcing questions about prior mental health. Can I add one? I would love it. I would love it if we went back and looked at meaningful use in the EMR, meaning meaning can we strip away some of the meaningful use criteria? Can we strip away some of the ways that hospitals are incentivized to increase documentation, change how they bill, uh, put pressure on clinicians to do that, to spend that extra time in the EMR that they could be spending with their patients? Can we limit that documentation and free them up? Well, I've got at least 50 questions, and I'm sure that you combined have like 75 answers, but I think we should bring it <laughs> bring it to a close. This has been so interesting and enlightening and sad and forward-looking. Uh, it's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you both so much, and thank you for your work um, helping physicians who are in distress. It's been an honor to be with both of you. Truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for helping us shine a light on this issue and helping us move the country forward. Let me end by saying that help is available. If anyone listening is depressed or contemplating suicide, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which has trained counselors available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can reach a counselor by phone at 800-273-TALK or by texting the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It is produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. Please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcast. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.